All right. Good morning. So our, our Bible reader, scripture reader this morning is Triana Von Ruff. Let's give her a hand as she comes up here. Many of you know her. Some of you do not. So I'm going to have her take a second to just tell you about herself and her family. Okay. If you don't mind doing that, that'd be great. All right. Hi, my name is Triana. Um, I, my husband and I have been married for almost 15 years. Um, and we have three kids, Valen, Vance, and Vincent. And we've been homeschooling since Valen was in kindergarten. Cool. And how did you hear about Revolution Church? Um, we have actually been in the same homeschool community as the Holton's Charity for since the very beginning, for about five years now. So she's been asking for a while if we would come out and join you. And so we finally said yes and have really enjoyed it. Great. We're glad you're here. Let's give them a hand. So... And there goes Brandon right there. This is Brandon, her husband, her other half right there. All right, cool. So, Triana, we're going to be in Mark chapter 15, and y'all can follow along as she reads for us. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they, have, they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now that the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, hail the king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you. Appreciate that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is a a deep passage of scripture. This is bringing everything to what you came to earth to do. And that is to die for sinful people like us. So Lord, this morning, we to fully appreciate, to fully grasp, to fully go through what this passage is about, we need your help. We need the Holy Spirit of God to fill us, to fill this place, to teach us. So Lord, open our hearts, open our minds, help us to see what our Savior endured for us. And help us to see how that can make us more like him as we learn from you today in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. 
So when I was actually three days old, 1964, March 13th, there was a tragic story in Queens, New York. Kitty Genovese was walking home late at night after getting work off work to back to her apartment uh, when um, a guy named Winston Mosley attacked her and brutally raped her in the alleyway. She was screaming for help. People in the alleyway turned their lights on and looked down. So he got up and ran away, thinking that people were going to intervene and help. But when he saw that no one came downstairs, he returned to beat her brutally and stab her to death. As The whole time, she's screaming out for help. Police investigators questioned people in the apartment complex who lived in that Queens neighborhood. 38 people said they heard screams. No one called the police. No one came downstairs to help. Not one person. Think about that. Sad story. And yet, the parallel to that is when we are in our worst situation here on earth and life is brutal, Jesus came down. He didn't say, well, I don't want to get involved. Jesus came down and got involved in our struggle and not only to the risk of his life, but at the loss of his life. That's why many people didn't come down. Well, I just didn't want to get involved. I thought it'd be dangerous or whatever. Jesus looked past the danger. He looked past the risk. He looked past the messiness of life, and he decided to come down and become one of us and to save us. It says that when it was morning, now understand this has been going on all night, which is illegal, as we learned a couple weeks ago. You can't have trials at night. They're supposed to be done during the day so that public objections could take place. Witnesses could be involved. And after you sentence someone, you're supposed to wait 24 hours before you execute them. And they didn't wait that. They tried to do it the same day. So in the morning, they go through this, okay, let's make it somewhat legal. and Let's have a consultation now so we can say we did a trial during the day, even though they already come to their verdict in this situation. And so the Jews bring him before this guy, Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the quintessential politician. He was a jerk, like many politicians. He was hypocritical. He had a lot. All he was concerned about was his own power, not concerned about people. But he was in big trouble. Uh, He was very brash and arrogant, and it got him in lots of trouble with people. Um, and he had made lots of mistakes prior to this. So Caesar's pretty much warned him, like, you, you mess up again, and your, your, your rulership is on the line. And what he had done when he first came in, he had totally offended the Jews by bringing in flags and posting banners everywhere of the picture of Caesar. No other governor had done that before. And the reason that was offensive to Jews is that was considered graven images, And the Jews were all about, you don't glorify people with all kinds of images. They didn't allow that at all. And he offended them with that. All the other governors of that area, even though they weren't Jewish, they had the sense not to do that, but he he didn't do that. So they kept throwing a fit about that, and they even sent messages to Caesar saying, hey, make them stop. And so Caesar told them to take them all down. But then they were upset about several other things. So he marched a bunch of the... He said, I want to meet with your leaders. So he, he had, met them in, the, in one of the colleges in the amphitheater. And then he had them surrounded by guards. And he says, if you don't stop complaining about the way I'm doing things, I'm going to cut your heads off. And you know what they did? They went, bring it. To a man, they all said, go ahead. We're not done complaining because you're doing wrong by God and by us. 
And then he thought, well, let me see if I can win their favor by building an aqueduct because the water supply in the area was not very good and each drought was costing many people's lives. And so he thought, I'll build an aqueduct, but I don't want to raise taxes to do it and I don't really have the money to do it. So here's what I'll do. I'm going to go into the temple and take the money out of the treasury of the temple to build the aqueduct. Well, you know what the Jews thought about that. This was holy money that they had given to God. It was korban, as they called it. And so he offended them again. And so the Jews can't stand this guy. Caesar thinks he's doing a horrible job. Everybody, and his, his, his job and his life in somewhat is, even, is on the line. And that's what brings us to, this is the man that Jesus is standing before. And really, miraculously, this is the man that's standing before Jesus. Because the irony, as you'll see, dramatic irony all throughout this, what Mark writes. And Mark's very clever about this. Dramatic irony is when the reader knows something that the people in the plot don't, don't see. And there's a lot of things that we know about this story that the people involved in the story don't see. But you'll see that. The irony is Pontius Pilate thinks he's being the judge of Jesus, but the truth is he's standing before his judge that will judge him eternally someday. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, they had made several accusations. They said he's misleading the people. He's telling people not to pay their taxes. And he claims to be the king of the Jews. Well, number one, he wasn't misleading the people. And Pontius Pilate could care less what he was teaching them. He was teaching them the truth. Number two, was it accurate that Jesus told people not to pay their taxes? Absolutely not. In fact, it was the exact opposite. They, they thought they could get him to go against Caesar. And he said, hey, who, whose face is on the coin here? Caesar's? Well, give the Caesar's what is Caesar's. In fact, remember another crazy story when Peter doesn't have the money to pay his taxes? And he says, go out and go fishing, and you'll catch one fish, open its mouth, and you'll find a coin in there, and that coin will be worth enough to pay your taxes and mine. So Jesus not only helped Peter pay his taxes, Jesus paid his own taxes. And yet they lied and say he's telling people not to pay their taxes. The third one is the one that only Pilate cares about because he doesn't care about those other issues because he knew they weren't, either weren't true or, didn't, or they were religious problems. But are you the king of the Jews? Now, if he's claiming to be the king of the Jews when Caesar is king of the Jews, then that's going to be a problem because there's been a lot of rebellions recently. In fact, the character Barabbas is one of the guys who started a rebellion trying to overthrow and win independence from Caesar and it failed like many others before him. But um, Jesus... As you'll see here, he says, I'm not that kind of king. So he says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus has this answer. And really, in English, it's really hard to appreciate the, I won't say sarcasm, but the cleverness of Jesus saying, well, you've said so. Jesus is basically, I'm not going to self-incriminate myself. I've been pleading the fifth the whole time. In fact, on all the accusations, Jesus says nothing. The only questions Jesus answers are about who he is. So I won't answer your questions about what I've done. I have a legal right not to answer that, and, and they're all lies anyway. I'm not going to get in an argument with fools about that. But when you ask me about who I am, I will answer those questions. Um, so the chief priest, chief priest accused him of many things. And again, we went over part of the list. And of course, remember a couple weeks ago, they couldn't even get their own witnesses to agree on what they were accusing Jesus of, about the temple and other things like that. And then Pilate says, you have no answer to make? You don't want to defend yourself? He says, do you see how many charges... They bring against you. And again, these are all false charges with the exception of being king of the Jews, but Jesus explains how I'm not that type of king. But Jesus made no further answer. Jesus shows incredible self-control by not answering. How many times have you 
When someone says something really stupid or arrogant or insulting and you just want to say something back and you just like, and it took every bit of ounce of strength that you had not to say something, which shows more strength than the person who didn't control their mouth. That's what Jesus is doing here. And all this is prophesied 700 years before it happens. And Isaiah describes in incredible detail what Jesus would say. And again, 700 years before it happened. In fact, let me encourage you. I was going to show it this morning, but it was very lengthy. I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, but there is a, a video you should look up on YouTube called The Forbidden Chapter, Isaiah 53. The Forbidden Chapter, Isaiah 53. Most Jews will not read this passage. The rabbis will not read this passage to them because it's so blatantly Jesus that they don't want them to understand and, and accept Jesus as Messiah. Just, it's worth watching, uh, taking your time to watch that video. But Isaiah, through the divine revelation of God, prophesied 700 years before it happened that here's what Jesus would experience. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him the, chast the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep. How many of us? All we like sheep have gone astray. If you think that you have not gone astray, if you think that you're not sinful, whatever, let me encourage you to rethink that because we all are. I'm not preaching down to you saying you're a sinner and I'm holy. I'm saying I am a sinner, you're a sinner, we're all sinners. The bad news is we are more sinful than we will ever realize. The good news is we are more loved than you can ever imagine. So that's the gospel right there, but let me move on here. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who did Christ die for? The sins of the whole world. Um, there's a lot of good brothers and sisters who are Calvinists. I'm not. I don't hate them or think ill of them. But I, one of the biggest reasons I'm not a Calvinist is, if you're familiar with the tulip, the L in tulip stands for limited atonement. They believe that Christ only died for the elect. But I can give you Bible verse after Bible verse after Bible verse that says Jesus died for us all. And this verse is, is one of them. It says, all we have all gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But Jesus made no answer further still. So that passage describes how it says, like a lamb before his, sheep, before his shears was dumb, he opened not his mouth. And of course, Jesus fulfills that prophecy right here. And it says, now at the feast, what feast are we talking about? We are talking about the biggest feast of all. The Jews have lots of feasts, but this is the feast of the Passover which Jesus is the Passover, right? He is the lamb that will take away the sins of the world. So for thousands of years, the Jews have been, you know, remember that time when they put blood on their door and, and they sacrificed the lamb and that the, that, the, uh, that the Lord would pass over them and not strike them dead or the firstborn dead. And so as they celebrate that, Jesus comes into the world and he becomes the Passover lamb as they're celebrating that. And so they had an amnesty tradition that the governor, not just Pilate, but other governors have done this, where they would release one prisoner. They would just let someone go to kind of appease the people. 
And Pilate thinks this is his out. This is my way out of this awkward situation. I've got this custom. Certainly they'll just say, hey, let me let this guy go. And among them, the rebels in prison who had committed murder. Now, this isn't just some thief or just some, you know, person who's robbing, you know, houses or whatever. This is a murderer. Now, he was a murderer in the insurrection, which is really interesting because one man's murderer is another man's freedom fighter. It just depends on what side of history you're on, you know. If you, re- if you have a revolution and you win, they're all freedom fighters and they're heroes. If you have a revolution and they lose, they're all murderers and rebels and they get thrown in prison. And this is Barabbas, you know. He could have been a hero, he could have been not, but uh, I think it's, I don't want to make him sound like he's better than he is, okay. I'm just trying to put the context here. He's, a, he's tried to overthrow Rome, and he killed people in the process, and his, man, his name is Barabbas. Now, if you know anything about Jewish names, there's two, like in English, we add the word son, which is pretty obvious, at the end of someone's name to that's the way we used to do names to people, like John's son, or Dickens' son, or, you know, all, you can add to that. In, in, a, in Ireland, they add Mac, MacDonald, MacPherson. Uh, I almost went broke on you there. Anyway, all those names. In Hebrew, they add either Ben or Bar. Ben Joseph or Bar Joseph. So his name is, ironically, Bar Abbas. Abba. What is Abba? The father. Isn't it ironic this guy's name is son of the father, but really he's being let go because the real son of the father has come. Again, there's tons of irony in this passage right here. Barabbas is the son of the father. And, and he, I believe, he was going to take the middle cross. That's just my speculation there. And I, I believe there would have been a thief other insurrectionists on either side of him. I think they were about to crucify three insurrectionists in this recent revolt. And Barabbas was the the ringleader, so he would have been on the middle cross, which really adds more depth to what Jesus did, right? So he is Barabbas, son of the father. And the Lord treated Barabbas, treated Jesus like Barabbas, so that he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. Another irony in that. So Jesus took the place. Here's the gospel in the story of Barabbas. Here is a sinner who deserves to die. There's no question about it. All the people know he's guilty. He knows he's guilty. Pilate knows he's guilty. And Jesus, who's done nothing wrong, Pilate says, what evil has he done? And the two trade places. That's the gospel. You and I, we're, we're convicted. We are sinners. Maybe we haven't broken man's laws, but we've broken God's laws, and we deserve punishment, we deserve eternal separation, but Jesus, who had done nothing wrong, takes our place, and he dies in our place for us. You see, the guilty was set free so that the innocent, and the innocent Jesus Christ took his place. The true part of the story is that I am Barabbas. Can you say that with me? I am Barabbas. If we don't see ourselves as this guilty, we really don't understand our own depravity. We really are more sinful than we realize. But again, the good news is we are more loved than we can ever, ever imagine. So the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did. Remember the custom, okay? And Pilate said, yeah, I'm talking to you about the custom. And so, yeah, we want you to do that. 
And he said, okay, so do you want me to relieve Jesus, release Jesus, king of the Jews? And he's thinking this is his out, out of the way of this awkward situation. And he perceived, he knew that the whole situation was because of envy. He had to appeal to the crowd because the, 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 the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders, all these religious leaders, he knew they were just jealous, to put it in our modern term there. So he tries to go around them and do an end run and talk to the crowd, thinking maybe they'll deliver up Jesus here. So just to be clear on our terms, jealousy is wanting what belongs to you. You love your spouse. Someone else tries to move in on your spouse. You're going to become jealous, I hope, and you should. That's why the Bible says God is a jealous God, right? And so there's nothing sinful about jealousy. It's loving and wanting to keep what you love and what belongs to you. Envy is wanting what belongs to someone else. Someone else has a nicer car than yours, and you're like, oh, why did they get a car like that? You know, Why did she marry him? You know, She could have married me. Or, man, that house, I think that house, that's too much. You know, or, man, why did they get the promotion and not me? And all of a sudden, you're envious of what other people have, which shows a discontent for what you do have. Instead of trusting in the sovereignty of God, okay, well, I guess it wasn't God's will. God must have something better for me, or maybe what I have right now is what's best for me at this time in my life. And instead of accepting all that, we become bitter with envy. So we oftentimes will say, well, you're just jealous, when we really should be saying is you're envious. Jealousy is a good thing. Envy is not. And he said that he knew, Pilate knew that these religious leaders, their problem was, which one? Envy. They wanted what Jesus was getting. The attention from the crowd, the power, the ability to teach, the ability to do all the things he did. They were, they were seeing their crowd shrink away and everybody following Jesus, and they were envious. And so um, envy is a big problem. In fact, Proverbs says this way, wrath, like when you feel bitter towards someone, that's cruel. Cruel to who? To you. <laughs> and anger like when you start expressing it, it becomes overwhelming when it starts bubbling over. But who's able to stand before envy? You go down that path of envy, it's like you're just going to be toast. You're going to become so bitter and so unthankful and so unhappy in life if you let that root of bitterness and envy take root in your life. Really, just walk away from that. So it's saying you can't even stand before it. So let me ask you a personal question. Don't raise your hand or answer it out loud, okay? But who or what do you envy? I think we'd all have to say there's some measure somewhere in our life that we do this some. Who or what do you envy? Why not really confess that to God right now as sin? Because that's, that's what it is. And it's not hurting the other person. <laughs> Who's it hurting? It's hurting us. And it's also showing ungratefulness towards God. But that's what the religious leaders did. That's what led to crucifying Jesus. So think about that. When we dabble in the sin of envy, we're dabbling in the very motive that killed our Savior. So when the chief priests stirred, they stirred up the crowd, they started going around and telling people, hey, we want to release Barabbas, not Jesus, because whatever. And they just continued with their lies, and they did all kinds of things to stir up the crowd. Leaders and influencers stir up crowds. Leaders and influencers, that's what they do. They stir up crowds. Now, you can stir up a crowd for good, or you can stir it up for evil. And, and politicians are leaders, right? Um, 
Preachers are leaders. Teachers are leaders. And we're, basically what we're doing is we're stirring people up, trying to get them to do something good. Evil leaders move the crowd away from Jesus, and good leaders move the crowd toward Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Which way are you stirring people up? Which way are you influencing people, for the better or for the worse? Jesus says there's no middle ground. You're either with me or against me. You're either causing people to come closer to me or driving people away from me. And this crowd was stirring up people to drive them away from Jesus. So Pilate's like, I don't know what to do with these people. What do you want me to do with Jesus? He's, I've already told you he's done nothing wrong. And he asked an important question. This is the question that every single one of you need to answer. What shall I do with Jesus? What shall I do with Jesus? We know what Pilate did. We know what the crowd did. We know what the religious leaders did. But my question for you this morning, that God, I believe, through the Holy Spirit is asking you, what will you do with Jesus? If you don't know Christ as your personal Savior, what are you going to do about that? You can trust him today. But you can say, well, yeah, Gary, I know I'm saved. I've already trusted Christ as my Savior. I've been born again. Okay, great. But what shall you do with Jesus today? Tomorrow? This week? At work? With your family? What are you doing with Jesus? Is he a nice little part of your life? You know, we got the Boy Scouts. We're involved in the HOA. And we give to this charity over here. And we got church and Jesus over here. And we got a job. And is he just a nice little piece of the pie? Or is he everything to you? Would you be willing to die for him? Would, is he more important than your spouse, than your kids, than you yourself? The answer to all those questions should be yes, yes, and yes. What shall you do with Jesus? We, we say we're Christians, but many times our lives give us away. I was talking to a friend this week, and um, he was talking about a, a guy uh, who he worked with who was also a Sunday school teacher. This and my friend is a Sunday school teacher, and this other guy was a Sunday school teacher, but at work, he would tell lewd jokes and use bad language. And one day, he, uh, he talked to him. He said, hey, you say you're a Christian, but you are, you're, you're, your language and your vocabulary and your jokes don't reflect it at all. And he's like, well, who are you to judge me, whatever? And I, I know more of the Bible than you do. I'm a Sunday school teacher. And my friend didn't know he was a Sunday school teacher. And then my friend went off on him. You're a Sunday school teacher, and you act like this? He said, you... You should just keep your mouth quiet. Don't tell people you're a Christian. He walked away mad. Just could not believe this guy would act like that. Almost a year later, the guy came to him and said, you know what? I'm sorry. You were right. I'm, and I'm glad you had the guts to tell me that I was being a hypocrite because that's what I was being. So we need to make sure that what we do with Jesus is make him Lord of every day. What we do with Jesus is make him Lord of our mouth. <laughs> Make him Lord of our eyes, make him Lord of our thoughts, make him Lord of every choice we make. Before we buy a car, we ask the Lord, should we do this? Before we quit a job, Lord, should I do this? Before we take a job, before we start dating someone, anything you do. If Jesus is Lord, he should be consulted on all these matters and submitted to as, as a child of God. But they, sell, they yell, crucify him. You see, the, they've been stirred up by the religious people, ironically, and they say, crucify him. Pilate asks this important question. What evil has he done? To, please tell me. I, I, and Pilate's being at least somewhat fair in the situation, but he, he's in a bad spot, and he shows no spine, as we'll see in a little bit. But instead of answering the question, what do they do? They shout all the more, crucify him. So now they amp up the volume. 
You, you know you're in a no-win situation when you're arguing with somebody and they just keep increasing in volume. Instead of understanding what your question is or making some decent points, they just start yelling. And as I've been telling the teens lately, just because you're talking louder doesn't make you right. <laughs> and yet it's a big part of our culture not to have a civil debate or discussion. It's just it's to yell over each other. Just watch CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, whatever, and they have, sometimes, they don't do this very much anymore, but they'll bring in some, a Democrat and Republican, and they'll try to have a discussion. No, they just start yelling and calling names, yelling and calling names. Like, can, is there anybody intelligent left on the planet that can have a, a civil discussion? And they just start yelling, as if that makes you right, because you're talking louder than I am. That's what they do in this situation. And you say, well, what an what a angry mob. You know, I'm glad people are more civilized than that today. Um, no. Here's a recent protest in America. Actually, this one's in Canada. This guy says, if Jesus was, returns, kill him again. Saw similar signs in the Portland riots. We are living in a culture that's, that hates your Savior. Hates their Savior. And the atheists show their cards because they don't attack Buddha 24-7. <laughs> they don't attack Islam. Isn't it ironic that the, the LGBT crowd is so anti-Christian, but they're not anti-Muslim. In fact, they'll come to their defense and say, oh, you're Islamophobic. You know that Muslims are far worse on the homosexual crowd than Christians ever were. And most, in fact, most of these Disney movies that are all woke and coming out with same-sex couples, you, there's like 13 different countries that won't even show it that are Muslim, and yet they defend him. So it's weird that, why are they so anti-Jesus? It's because he's the true God. Notice the atheists don't even attack Satan. <laughs> In fact, one of the most popular atheists just came out recently, it was discovered that he is actually a Satanist, he's not really an atheist. Because you can't be a Satanist and an atheist at the same time. So there, there's a lot of people. This guy right here, on his website, he talks about how Jesus is a legend and that there was no historical documentation um, until around 350 AD. Now, he is either incredibly stupid or he's lying through his teeth. And most atheists are one or the other. And I don't believe, I don't believe he's stupid. I mean, you, let's just take, for example, Josephus. I can give you hundreds of documentation. Josephus was, did not, was a Jew who was paid by the Romans to record history. Okay? He did not accept Jesus as Messiah. But in 90... You see there... Let me just read it to you. It says, The extant manuscripts, tons of copies of this, of the Book of Antiquities, which is what Joseph, Josephus recorded as history of the Jews. It was written by the first century Jewish historian Flavius Josephus around 93, 94 A.D., now, if Jesus died, let's say in 33, which we don't know exactly the year, then this would be 60 years after Jesus. Is that 350 years after Jesus? No. You know, he talked about references to Jesus of Nazareth, and he went on to write specific details about the reference to John the Baptist and him being beheaded, and the first and most extensive references to Jesus as antiquities. Uh, was found in Book 18 of Josephus that states that Jesus the Messiah and it was a wise teacher and was crucified by Pontius Pilate. He names John the Baptist, Pontius Pilate, and Jesus of Nazareth specific details 60 years after it happened. Is that 350 years? No. I mean, but either of these people are very ignorant of history and I, like I said, I can give you other historians who have recorded details about Jesus. He wasn't a legend. He, and people, but people do all kinds of things. But atheism produces this kind of stuff. Jesus said one of the most amazing statements. He says, wisdom is justified by her children. 
Wisdom, a way of thinking, a worldview, if you will, is justified. You can tell what worldview is correct or justified by what it produces. What does Christianity produce? The first orphanages in the world were produced by Christians. The first hospitals, the first universities. Almost till to this day, worldwide charity, the Red Cross is the first to be there. Samaritan's Purse is among the first to be there. Who is around the world helping people more than anybody else? When's the last time you drove by an atheist hospital? You can drive by Methodist, St. Luke's, and, and Baptist Hospital in Beaumont. You don't drive by First Atheist Hospital. They're not helping people. They're not helping people. You see, what does it produce? If you're wondering you know, which world religion is right, just look, teenagers, at what it produces. Here's what, if you look at the most recent 12 mass shooters, guess what they all have in common? One of them, and here's the other six. One of them is Asian, the rest are Caucasian. Okay, you could say white people are evil. Well, maybe. We have our own problems. But all 12 of them are atheists. All 12 of them are atheists. You take God out of the schools and say you can't pray, you can't read the Bible, you can't even say the Pledge of Allegiance anymore in some schools. You take God out, guess what? The atheists come in and what do atheists do? Looks like they shoot people. Because guess what? If I walk into a room full of people and I'm mad at them, but I'm, I believe in my heart that they're all created in the image of God, I'm just going to grit my teeth and bear it and just walk away. But if I believe they're all just like monkeys who've evolved, then what does it matter if I shoot them all? And what does it matter if I shoot myself? You see what atheism produces? You think, Gary, you're just using hyperbole or exaggerating. I, just talk to any atheist and, and find out why they're so bitter and angry. I have not met one yet who is not bitter and an angry person. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, that's what politicians do. It's so few. In fact, I, I believe that most of even good people who run for office, once they spend much time in the swamp, they become evil and corrupted by the power because power corrupts. Uh, but he's, he's wanting to do it, a lot of politicians, so he's wanting to satisfy the crowd. So he decided to release from Barabbas. And even though he said Jesus has done nothing wrong, he scourges him. You already say he's done the wrong, so what are you beating him for? He delivered him. Anyway, just, it's interesting. And with, with what he scourged him, and Luke will talk in detail the medical pain that Jesus. The doctor, Mark, just like blows through the details. He spends most of the time on how Jesus was treated, like shamed. And also, you have to realize who is Mark's audience. He's writing this to Romans, so when he says he scourged them, they're all like, "Oh man, I know what a scourging is. I've seen it." My uncle was scourged, or, you know, they've seen it. You know, Matthew has to explain in detail scourging because not a lot of Jews at this point remembered what that was. But Mark just simply says, and he delivered him to be crucified. Romans would understand crucified, that it's like a hyperlink to all the detail. That's why Mark doesn't have to go into a lot of detail. But what they scourged Jesus with, it was commonly called a cat of nine tails. Leather straps braided. And you, often they would bead, they would, they would uh, tie into the beads and the braiding, you know, rocks, glass, bones, 
anything sharp and hooked so that when they flesh, never pulled away, it just ripped flesh away. Again, not an uncomfortable thing to dwell on, but we must. If we're to truly appreciate what our Savior went through, we have to stop and think about this. That, that's what communion is. This do in remembrance of me, to stop and remember how much, how much I suffered for you. How much I went through for your sins. So the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. They're not taking Jesus lightly. They think there's going to be an uprising, that this is going to turn into rebellion. And they twisted together a crown of thorns. What kind of crown does Jesus deserve? A gold crown? And someday, praise God, he will be crowned king of kings, and he is, in effect, king of kings, lord of lords right now. But they put on him, in mockery, a crown of thorns. And it's a reference back to the curse. Remember in Genesis, God cursed the earth and said it would bring forth what? Thorns. And we'll talk about that more in just a minute. But then they also put a reed, you know, something that you'd beat some with, in his right hand like a scepter. Instead of a golden scepter with jewels on top and all that, they put a reed in his right hand. And they're bowing before him and they're mocking him. They're saying, oh, hail, king of the Jews. You know, it'd be like if our soldiers were mocking somebody and they all salute him. These guys are all bowing down and taking a knee. And they spit on him. The Jews had just got done doing what to him. They spit on him also. So you got two groups of people spitting on Jesus. First, the Jewish people who should have accepted him as Savior. And now the Romans who are spitting on him. And they took the reed and they struck him in the head. And the it's ironic, again, just a few chapters previously, Jesus took spit and made mud and spread it on a blind man's eyes to bring healing. Then he took spit and he touched it on a guy's tongue and then in his ears to restore his hearing and his speech because he was deaf and mute. So Jesus two times is using spit on two different peoples, which sounds weird to us because we're so germaphobic, but there was a lot of symbolism in what Jesus was doing. He's saying, basically, I'm putting my life into you, okay? And, on this, and now two different groups of people are spitting on Jesus as they kill him. Jesus is using spit to bring life and healing to two different groups of people over here. They're using spit to, before they kill the Savior. You see the irony here? When you read your Bibles, read, read it carefully because this is the kind of great stuff that Mark is throwing in there. So now you have the, the religious people spitting on Jesus. You got the Roman people spitting on Jesus. And then they clothed him in a purple cloak, probably an old military garb because the Roman soldiers were maroon, and this one was like a maroonish purple. And then they twisted together a crown of thorns, and they did that to him. The previous pet was about what Matthew told us details. So this is possibly how they would have implemented it on his head, Rather than cutting their own hands, they pushed it down on that. Can you imagine the pain of two and a half inch thorns going into your scalp, all around your scalp, after you've been beaten all night long? And so here is Jesus, our Savior, with a reed in his hands, a crown on his head, and a purple cloak. All the things mocking him. The crown should have been gold, the robe should have been white, the reed should have been a golden scepter. Someday he will. Someday he will have all these things in the proper way. But Jesus is not a victim here. 
Jesus says, no man takes my life from me. I freely lay it down. Jesus went all through all of this for one reason. You. He went through this for you. They thought they were totally in control and that he was just a helpless victim, but he was the one orchestrating all this. He was the one fulfilling prophecy. Isaiah, again, 700 years before it happens, it says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow, as Jesus wears this scarlet robe, showing that he's bearing the sins and the blood of many. And though they be like red, like crimson, they shall become white like wool. Genesis says, cursed is the ground of, of, because of you. See, Adam was in charge of nature. He was supposed to be, make the, uh, the trees of the garden and herbs and everything be fruitful, multiply. He was supposed to take care of the garden. But because he sinned against God, God caused the ground to bring forth thorns and weeds and all those other things we fight all the time. And he says that in pain you shall eat of all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall be forth, bring forth for you. So Jesus is taking the curse upon Adam and taking it upon his head. He is our, our headship. He is the authority. And he's taking it upon himself as part of taking the curse of sin upon him. And they began to salute him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And so they're striking him on the head with a reed. They're spitting on him. They're kneeling down. The humiliation. It's interesting. Again, Mark puts more emphasis on how they humiliated and shamed Jesus more than the details of what they physically did to him. Romans 14 says, as it is written, as I live, says Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God so that each of us will give an account of himself to God. These Roman soldiers were bowing before Jesus in mockery. Someday they'll bow before him, realizing we were wrong. And I believe, we know, for, we know that one of the, the centurion, as we'll see next week, probably did get saved because after all this, he said, truly, this was the Son of God. And I want to believe that maybe other Roman soldiers got saved through that. And maybe they knelt before him later. Um, but every human being, and, and just think for a moment. Think of your worst enemy, okay? Just go ahead. I'll give you permission. Who do you really dislike? And you, you might be thinking of a politician. You might be thinking of someone at work, maybe a relative, maybe a neighbor. Think of someone you really don't like. And you just really wish that justice would prevail and that they would get what's coming to them. Well, someday they're going to bow before Jesus. But you know what the Christian response to that should be? Pray that they accept him as Lord and Savior before then. Because even you, I believe, will weep if they're sentenced to eternity without Christ. And remind yourself that you too will bow before Jesus. Everybody... Donald Trump, Barack Obama, Joe Biden, Vladimir Putin, Prime Minister Xi, all of them are going to take a knee before Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. There's no exceptions. There's no getting out of this. And this is what makes people uncomfortable because they don't like the idea of bowing for Jesus now. They're not going to like it then. And so they have to dismiss all this religion stuff because the whole thing makes them uncomfortable because here's what people do not like accountability. It's my life. I want to live the way I want to live. No, it, it's not. You've been bought. You've been purchased with a price. Your life belongs to him. And so therefore, you answer to him. You know, many of us in this room work either a salary or hourly, and when you're on the clock, 
It's not your time. You shouldn't be surfing the web. You should be doing work. And they sh- your boss, your manager, your department head can tell you what to do during that time because during that time, you belong to them. Well, you know how long we belong to Jesus Christ? 24-7, 365. Every, mo- every conscious moment of every day, we should be saying, Lord, what would you have me to do? Not my will, but yours be done. Mark 15, verse 20 says, And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and they put his own clothes back on him, and they led him away to crucify him. We'll talk more about that next week. So what happens with Pontius Pilate? Eventually, he was dismissed from his duties. He was basically banished, moved hundreds of miles away, was forced to take an early retirement, if you will, And two and a half years later, he committed suicide. Just like Judas, he had time to repent. Just like Judas, he saw the Savior. He could have changed his mind. Peter denied the Lord. But did Peter commit suicide like Judas and Pilate? No, he repented. He admitted he was wrong. I mean... When Peter denies Jesus 50 days later at Pentecost, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, preaching boldly to the same people who just crucified his Savior. They could have crucified him, and later they would, right? In fact, what does Peter say when they go to crucify him? What did he tell him? I'm not worthy to be crucified the same way Jesus. Crucify me upside down is what history tells us. Peter was bold. What changed? It was the filling of the Holy Spirit. It was walking in obedience to Christ. And do you not think somebody at some point said, hey, Peter, come on, aren't you being hypocritical? You denied Jesus. And he had to say, yeah, you're right, I did. I messed up badly back there. But Jesus forgives sins. See, this is what many of us aren't willing to do, to admit I was wrong, I was an idiot, I really messed up, but I thank God that Jesus forgives me. And I move on with my life. You see, pride will keep you from doing that. And Pontius Pilate, for two and a half years, probably could not get the picture of Jesus' face out of his mind. Remember his wife had nightmares about him? During the day, she comes to him and says, hey, don't mess with this man Jesus. I've been having terrible nightmares about this guy. You just should leave him alone. I think Pontius Pilate probably had nightmares about Jesus after that. And what are you being troubled with? Is it keeping you from trusting Christ? Or is it pushing you towards trusting Christ? It really comes down to one thing. Your pride. Your pride. Will you humble yourself and accept the forgiveness of God? Or will you continue to be stubborn about that? Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, If you will confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Someday you're going to admit it. Why not do it now? (laughs) Jesus, you're my Lord. You are the king of the universe. And I believe in my heart that that God raised you from the dead after you died for my sins. Three days later you rose from the dead. If you will do that, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and you're justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Pontius Pilate asked a great question. What will you do with Jesus? What shall I do with Jesus? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes and just drown out all distraction right now? If you know Christ as Savior, take a moment just to thank him for, that you do know him, that he does forgive sin. And then pray for those who don't. If you are not sure, you may, maybe you've been coming to church here for a long time, 
but you're still not sure. You still have doubts. Maybe you're watching online and this is new to you. Will you continue to just hold on to your right to live your life your own way? Or will you give your life to Christ because he bought it with his blood? Think of all the worst things you've ever done. All of them can be erased by the blood of Christ if you will accept the gift of salvation. It's a free gift that he offers to everyone. Right now, would you make that decision? Father in heaven, thank you so much for Christ. It's hard to watch all that he endured. But Lord, help us not just to get down about it, but to rejoice that he did that for us and that he wasn't just a victim, but three days later, just like he predicted, he rose from the dead and he is alive and on the throne and we are waiting for his return. So Father, I pray that you would help us to live like people who are expecting him to come any day now. So when we answer the question, what shall I do with Jesus? I will make him Lord of every moment of every day the Lord of all my decisions, the Lord of my lifestyle, the Lord of my money, the Lord of my family, the Lord of my career, Lord of all. Thank you, Jesus, for all you've done. In your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. If you made a decision to trust Christ, please contact me. I'd love to talk to you about your next steps as a new believer. We're going to move into communion time right now. So if you would please uh, stand with me as we read the scripture communion together. First Corinthians chapter 11, read me with me on verse 23. For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he betrayed took bread. And giving thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. I'm sorry, that's repeat the verse in my bed. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show the Lord's death until he come. So that whoever shall eat of this bread and drink of this cup of the Lord unworthily, he'll be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. So self-examination is crucial in communion. Do not do this if this is something you take lightly or just do it because everybody else does. You should take time, every one of us, to think about how have I sinned against the Lord today, this week? Is there any unconfessed sin? Examine yourself because to not do that is to partake unworthily. And so, and Paul goes on to write that many of the Corinthians who made a mockery of communion, many of them got sick and some even died. So we are to take time to confess our sins and to uh, forsake our sins and repent of sin, not in order to be saved or to stay saved, but because we are saved and we're, we're celebrating the forgiveness of sins here. So um, uh, let's pray, and then we're going to take time as the elements are... When, after you've taken time to pray and to have a conversation with the Lord, then you can come forward and they'll be, they'll be serving you um, with uh, precautions in place, you know, to make sure it's all... Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Safe, COVID safe, okay. So Father in heaven, pray now that you would open our hearts, reveal to us where we've sinned against you. Help us to have the humility of heart to confess our sins. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So if you will, 
be seated and enter into a time of prayer. Communion means that his body was torn apart so that we could be brought together as the body of Christ. Are you thankful to be the body of Christ this morning? Amen. You may be seated. We're going to go to uh, question and answer time. So feel free to text in your questions and answer questions. I'll try to do the answers. If you have an answer, you can do that too. Uh, or you can raise your hand. If you're watching online, there's my cell phone number. Feel free to text that in. There was a question that came in a couple weeks ago uh, that Matt asked, actually, Matt's daughter. And uh, I told him I would answer it because it came in after we were done. So I told him I'll answer this in person. So here it is. He said, about the part where God said, depart from me, I never knew you. How could someone cast out a demon unless they were with Christ? So if you remember, the people are standing before the Lord. He separates the sheep and the goats. And he says to them, you know, uh, they say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done many marvelous things in your name? We prophesied, cast out demons and many miracles. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. It's not like, well, I knew you, but then you strayed away and I let you go, whatever. No, they never were true believers. So the basis of this question is, how could you cast out a demon? You're not even a true believer. There's no set answer. I mean, there's some answers on Scripture I feel very strong about. This is one I'm not really sure. Let me give you a few options. Number one, they are saying they did, but they didn't. Like they were claiming miracles, claiming casting out demons, but a lot of it was just show, you know, which there's been several churches recently, Bethel Church and others, not this Bethel, (laughs) the one in um, California, um, they've been caught doing fake healings, fake demonic possession, fake everything. It was just a show. And that doesn't make the real thing not possible or real. But there, a lot of things in the name of Jesus are fake, unfortunately. And so it's possible that, number one, they didn't even do it. They're just claiming they did or thought they did, but it wasn't real. Number two, it's possible that, like Pharaoh's magicians, they copycatted miracles. You remember Moses throws down his, his uh, rod, it turns into a serpent. They cast down their rods and it turns into serpents too. But what does Moses' serpent do? It eats up theirs, okay, showing it was the greater miracle. And so some people interpret that as, and they actually did a miracle, but it was magic, sleight of hand, or it was just sleight of hand. Like magicians that don't do real magic, they just are fooling you with the coin. It doesn't really disappear, they just do it, you know, what's up their sleeve and things like that. Again, so was that what was happening? Possibly, possibly Satan was working with this, these fake miracles to make them look real or actually real. I don't know. But then you have to go back to what Jesus says. Does Satan, can Satan drive out Satan? And Satan, Jesus is implying, no, that doesn't happen. So the third option is that they actually did miracles because the name of Jesus is that powerful. That they could speak to a demon and say, in the name of Christ, I cast you out. And even though they don't even personally know Christ... The name of Jesus carries that much weight and authority that it actually happened. Again, which one of those, I don't know. But we know it's true. We just don't know which one of those three. And there may be a fourth option that I don't know of. But great question. Um, feel free to ask Jesus the, the, the best answer when you meet him, okay? Um, who else has a, a question for us? Oh, um, Ashley. I didn't even ask the phone to come up and help me. Come on up here and read your own question. <laughs> Yours is the first question on the list here. First Chronicles was reading it this week. It talks about a man and maybe even his whole family who served in the temple prophesying with musical instruments. And my brain said, what? How, how do you, how, how should we interpret that? Prophesying with musical yeah, instruments. I'll look it up for you. <laughs> 
So don't know. Next question. Right. Next. <laughs> I um, really don't know. I, 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 I'm sure I've read that and just glossed through it without even giving a thought. It's uh, if anyone's curious. It's First Chronicle or it's uh, First Chronicles book okay. twenty five or chapter twenty five. So, verse three. It says of Jeduthun and the sons of Jeduthun. It names all of them under the direction of their father, who prophesied with the lyre in thanksgiving and praise to the Lord. Okay, I just realized now what I'm... Okay, this is my thought on this, not yeah. having said, and I could be wrong. So the word with can be used for accompaniment or with implementation. Which one does it mean? If I say I'm having lunch with Tammy, does that mean that Tammy is my lunch? No, obviously not. I'm having together, but I'm still eating lunch. So prophesying with musical instruments, I'm prophesying along with the musical instruments. Okay. As I'm playing, you know, or whatever I'm playing, I'm prophesying with. So maybe they're I don't singing? Think, yes, because like it says with thanksgiving. Right. And you don't do, so I think he is singing yeah. a prophetic song. Okay, that and makes so, sense. But he's playing an instrument while he's saying, thus says the Lord, and he's doing it with thanksgiving. That's and he's singing a song of prophecy used with an, accompanied by, and it's, I don't think he's using the instrument to make the prophecy. So I'll follow that with one more question before I get to uh -huh. Emmanuel's. Um, are you a cessationist? Do you believe about the gifts of the Spirit? There's like five different sure. things. So do, we believe, do you believe that the gifts of the Spirit ended at the New Testament or are present today or somewhere in between? So... Cessationist means people who believe that that the miraculous, the apostolic gifts have ceased, and continuous obviously means they've continued. And then I'm somewhere like in the middle. Okay, I believe that the apostles did a that. Okay, let me just back up. Old, let's go Old Testament all the way through. Every time a prophet would speak for the Lord, people were like, well, who are you? Why should we listen to you? And they'd say, oh, well, let me call down fire from heaven. Now do you believe me? Let me cast down my rod. Now do you believe me? They always used signs as an affirmation. Of, of their prophecy. Mm -hmm. So the apostles come along and say, we speak for God. I'm like, oh, why should we listen to you? And of course, then they do the miracles and they raise the dead and they do things like that. So I think that, and you, miracles weren't an everyday thing. Otherwise, they wouldn't be miracles. Like if you study how many miracles in the Bible and how many years of history there are, you're like miracles were happening like every hundred years or so. They weren't like a daily phenomenon. They were a rare thing. So do I believe miracles still happen today? Yes. Okay. I believe that we can lay hands on someone and the cancer disappears. I believe that, okay? I do not believe we have the same extent as the apostolic gifts of the first century, which were to confirm in the absence of, an, of a New Testament documented, they were doing that. But I believe that there are, they are extremely rare. So, for example, let's just take tongues, which is the most popular one. Um, if, if you speak in tongues, you need to do exactly what Paul said. You need to do it one at a time. No more than three, and always with an interpretation. And again, um, you, many of you have been in a service where it's happened or you see it on TV, and all three of those rules are broken most of the time. Everybody's doing it all at the same time, which is not biblical. Um, no, it's, it's way more than three, and rarely is it with interpretation. But sometimes it is, and if, all I'm going to say is if you can do all three of those, more power to you. But I believe it's extremely rare. Always test the spirit. Always test the spirit. And, and again, it's, it's also for the, the fourth rule is it's for the edification of the body. Mm -hmm. And again, most people do it as a, an ecstatic utterance of the, to please themselves. So, for example, Hindus can speak in tongues. Mormons can speak in tongues. 
Many non-Christian religions can speak in tongues, so that doesn't mean it's always of God. Okay, so it's the, the, the psychological word for it is, is glossolalia, that people can get so worked up into a rhythm. That's why there's usually a, a whole lot of music, repetitive music over and over again to work people up into that feeling to where they, it subconsciously it happens. So again, I'm not saying everybody who speaks in tongues is doing it wrong. I'm saying, but if you do it, you need to follow Paul's rules. And Paul's rules usually makes it happen where it's extremely rare. Mm-hmm. And also, people who, a lot of people today claim to be apostles. I'm like, okay, why are you not going to the hospital and raising the dead then? And then people say, well, I heard of a missionary. Okay, even in third world Africa, they all have cell phones. Why is it not being captured on cell phones? People have been dead and raised from the dead. So I... I dismiss the majority of the so-called miraculous because they fall into the category of, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these many things in your name? And what does he say to the majority of them? Depart from me, I never knew you. So I believe the majority of things that are happening out there, and I'll go name names, Benny Hinn and all those other are phony baloney. And the ones especially who say, you know, send me your money, widows, you know, and they fly around into private jets, I think they're absolutely of the devil. Uh, Kenneth Copeland, all those, they're just, I believe that's demonic, and they push this stuff. They push the fake stuff, but that doesn't mean we should dismiss the real stuff, mm-hmm. okay? It's interesting that Jesus' many, the biggest ones of his enemies were hypocrites and religious Hypocr- people, exactly. and I think yeah. we, I agree, we still see that today. Okay, let's move on. Questions, we got lots of questions. Um, my question is, the thorn in the flesh that Paul dealt with, was it a physical defect or a sin that he couldn't get rid of? I heard it this week. Um, that's a good question, and um, pastors, theologians have been debating this for centuries. Nobody knows for sure. If they say they know for sure, they're wrong. Um, that's only, it says it's a thorn in the flesh, and he prayed, but the flesh is also used as something to struggle with sin. So I could see both of those. Um, he prayed to be taken away. He did say, so let's go over what we know for sure. He did say it was given to keep him humble. Because he had so many revelations, and he wrote more books than anybody else in the Bible, even though he didn't write the majority of content, he wrote the majority of books, that he could have been lifted up with pride, but God left this thorn in his flesh. I'm pointing to his side. I wish he point to his eyes, because I believe it was his vision. I believe his vision was failing. Because later he writes, I forget which book of the Bible, he says, see which large, what a large letter I write you? And it was only a few chapters long. He meant what large letters I'm writing. He said, I am so blind right now, I'm having to write humongous letters to read what I'm writing. You know how when you get in your 40s, you do this? That's what Paul was doing, but it was worse. He was suffering from bad vision. Um, that's, that's my thought on that. So um, I believe it was a physical ailment that kept him humble so he wouldn't be lifted up pride. Now, uh, if it was a sinful temptation... I can't imagine him praying three times for God to remove the sinful temptation and God not because James says, if you resist the devil, he'll flee from you. You're supposed to resist temptation. So I don't think God said, no, no, I'm going to keep letting you be tempted, you know, uh, with this whatever's in your life, you know. Um, so I think it was a physical ailment. People, some people, because he says it was a messenger of Satan and think it's an actual person. But again, like the plague of, uh, the plagues in the Old Testament talks about a messenger brought them, like the firstborn. It doesn't mean it was a literal person. It's God is using this plague as a message, and this at the hand of it, this is my messenger. A vehicle for the message. A vehicle, good word, yeah. Okay, um, the question came in, in what tense do you mean speak in tongues? Was that question answered? Did we answer that question? Did he answer that question? In what tense? Yes, in what tense do you mean speak in tongues? I believe it could happen today, present tense. Okay. 
Does that answer your question, or did you mean, where's Sam? Samuel, does that answer your question? Speak in multiple languages okay. or speak, speak language that it does not have a Yeah, a so there's two types of tongues, at least as some people see it. Like in Acts chapter 2, it names the different languages. And it said every man heard that which was in his own language. So tongues in the most general sense then was the supernatural ability to speak a foreign language that I didn't previously know. And of course the timing of that was perfect because it was Pentecost. Jews from all over the planet were coming in from all over parts of the world, and it said every man heard in his own language, Scythian, Greek, and all that stuff, and names the nine different languages that, that they spoke in. So it's like if I met someone from Portugal, and all of a sudden I supernaturally have the gift to speak Portuguese, that was some of what. Now there's another type of tongues that some people call a prayer language, which some people think is an angelic language. And there's a good case for that, that I'm speaking a, lang a heavenly language, and I'm using it as a way to communicate with God. And so those are the two types of tongues. There's a literal language tongues, and then there's a possible angelic language or prayer language. That, um, and Paul, Paul talks about the two different kinds and how one you just need to do at home and exercise there, and one you need to use in the congregation. I have heard of missionaries who have met someone that they didn't know the language, and God gave them the ability to miraculously speak the language to share the gospel with them. So, again, both types there. Good. Any other questions? Yeah, we got lots of questions. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, when we are and we're using, okay on time. Okay, right. good. When we are using our computers, phones, or other electronic devices, and we check the box that we read and accept the terms and conditions, but we didn't actually read them, is that technically lying and therefore technically commuting a technical sin? I added that last technical. <laughs> yes. Next question. No, I'm just all right. <laughs> I just threw all of us under the bus there. Um, I think what's being implied is I waive my right that if I didn't read this, it's on me. So I, think that's, I don't think there's anything unethical in saying that. It um, should be more accurate is that I skimmed and scrolled past right, the Right, the lawyers won't let that fly, though, for sure. Like I think okay. you're just basically saying I waive my right to whatever you want to do to me, take my firstborn child and read all my emails. Go ahead. I don't care, you know. All right, Paul said, I thank my God I speak in tongues more than you all. What is the explanation or yeah. interpretation of that? Paul, Paul spoke in tongues, and he was basically making a point there that, hey, you know, you want to talk about tongues. I speak in tongues more than all y'all. And he said, but here's what I want you to do. Please just follow the rules. And you're so obsessed with speaking in tongues, but you're not doing the other things. And he goes into the whole chapter of 13 mm -hmm. to follow and say, hey, love, just love each other. Because what they were doing was they were coming to communion and they were making it a big feast. And the wealthy people who brought food were tired of all the poor people coming up. And this happens here, right? All the chicken's gone. I didn't get any chicken. What happened? So you know what the wealthy people said? Hey, let's all meet at 11 o'clock. Let's tell the church 12 o'clock so we can at least get some of the church's fried chicken. And then we'll let the poor people have what's left. And Paul's like, no, no, tarry for one another. That's what he says right there. Tarry for one another. And, and, and start loving each other. You guys are all so excited to speak in tongues. I think it's speaking tongues more than y'all. You guys can't even have a communion without being divisive. And so that's why he made that point. Good, good, good question or good comment. Do you think there is a connection in LGBT leaving the faith and how many families have separated from gay kids? Is there, oh, absolutely. Jesus says, I didn't, Jesus said, I came to bring a sword. I'm going to part father against son, mother against daughter, mother-in-law against sister-in-law, the, the whole thing. He says, I, I, I will divide things. He said that my way is a narrow way. 
and that the few there be that find it. And so when you step out and say, hey, I, I believe the Bible, I believe it's inspired from Genesis to maps, and I believe that everything right here is in God's word, and yes, I believe that homosexuality is a sin. I love you, but I don't like what you do. That's going to divide people, because today, as I'm going to teach the teens today, love means you affirm everything I do. If you love me, you got to say that I'm okay and everything I do is okay. I can't say that about anybody, right? I mean, can you look at anybody and say, everything you do is great? No, we all are sinners, and we're not supposed to say, hey, you're fine, you're fine, just do what you do. You be you. No, that's, the Bible says you should have enough courage and love to confront somebody and say, hey, you know what, I love you, but, I'll, but what you're doing over here, this is not right. Okay, and, and, but the people, today, everybody's truth is their own truth, and nobody's allowed to say anybody's wrong. Unless you're a born-again Christian, then you're wrong. And we'll tolerate everybody, but we won't tolerate you. So the, the hypocrisy is off the charts, and it's, it's sad. There is a lot of that going on. And let me just say this. If you, are, you fall under the umbrella of LGBTQ, you're, you're, if you have a Christian family, they should love you. That doesn't mean they support you. I mean, that doesn't mean you can't have holidays together, you can't do things together. They should not say, we won't talk to you as long as you have that lifestyle. That's my opinion. Mm -hmm. But you, on your side, you, can't, you should not say, you have to approve of what I do and who I am, or I'm not going to talk to you. That's not fair. Your being is just intolerant as they are. You know, you just agree on what you agree on and disagree on what you disagree on, and just like politics and other things, don't talk about it at Thanksgiving. Still try to love And try to function. Yeah, I do think that um, what I've seen is that many times it is an excuse to not behave in a Christian manner to someone that you disagree with. That parents or family members or anyone who disagrees uses that separation as an excuse to not deal with the topic. Right. And people on both sides like to play the victim, too. Right. And as long as you're a victim, everybody feels sorry for you. And, and it, all their friends don't hear the other side of the story. And I'm talking about both sides, the Christian and the, and the person and the lifestyle. They will say, oh, yeah, this, 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 this. But what's the other side of the story? So let me give a parallel. Let's say that I'm, I'm going to be unfaithful to Tammy, okay? God forbid, I don't want to do that. But let's just say I do that. And uh, Tammy and I are divorced and all, or we're separated, and I have a girlfriend. And let's say, you know, Bob and Eloise invite me over for Thanksgiving. Uh, but I want to bring my girlfriend. Bob, are you going to say yes to that? No. Say it louder, Bob. No. no, no. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> well, come on. You have to affirm this relationship. No, he does not. He, this is wrong. You're doing Tammy wrong. You're doing the kids wrong. You're doing the church wrong. I love you, Gary, but I'm not affirming your relationship. So again, for those living in that lifestyle, you, you don't ask to bring your partner to the holidays. You're, you're basically, it's just like if you're someone having an adulterous affair, bringing them in and saying, hey, you need to approve this. No, they don't. Just, I would not approve an adulterous relationship. I would not approve a same-sex relationship. And um, anyway, it doesn't mean that you don't meet outside of those things, though, too. Like, you know, if you if you you have to make that decision on a separate basis, yeah. but not invite the drama in during big that, that would be events. a personal case by case yeah. situation for yeah. sure. OK, sorry. Keep going. Explain the resurrection, how we can how we can be resurrected like Jesus. Yeah, it says, OK, first John two fourteen. I think it says we shall see him as he is. And we, behold, we should be like him. For we shall see him as he is. So we have to say, well, how was Jesus when he left? Because remember, the angel said, this same Jesus that went up into heaven shall return on clouds of glory the same way. So how did Jesus go up? Physical body, still had the scars in his hands, which 
Uh, ironically, the only man-made thing in heaven will be the scars in Jesus' body. Um, he will still have the scars. He was recognizable. There was times when he wasn't recognizable. But it says he veiled himself, like he made it to where they couldn't see him. But unless he unveiled himself, people said, hey, it's Jesus. Let's see the scars in his hand, feel the, the, the scar in his side. He said, hey, I'm not a ghost. Give me something to eat. So we will eat in heaven. Okay, we will have a physical body in heaven. So the question now is, look, but what about someone who just died and we know where their body is? Well, their spirit is with the Lord because Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But then what happens in 1 Thessalonians? It says that he shall bring them with him and the dead in Christ shall rise first and body and soul will be reunited. And that's when your, your soul, so someone you know that's with the Lord right now, they are in a spirit body, but their physical body will be resurrected like Jesus' physical body, and it'll be, it'll be a glorified body. So it may be glowing. <laughs> if you know, Jesus had a brightness about him. Um, Jesus was able to kind of time, like, not, like teleportation. It's like he was on one side of Israel. Next thing you know, he's on the other side of Israel like, like that. It's like, wait a minute, that takes several days to get there, and he was there then. Jesus walked through a wall. So all the doors were locked, and then Jesus appears in the room. If we're going to be able to do that, maybe so. I don't know. Living in another dimension. Yeah. Um, so how, what about spiritual resurrection? So when we, when we die spiritually to our sin, and then we are resurrected to new oh, life. Oh, did I totally miss that? No, I just, there was not an explanation. I figured you could come okay. a little <laughs> So um, if you're using the word spiritual resurrection, so it says, if, we, if we've died with Christ, let us also live with Christ. So what Paul was saying there is that the, the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead, it gives you the power to walk victorious over sin. So every time you come to a choice with sin, when you were lost, your, your choices were sim, all sinful. But now you've got a choice between the flesh and the spirit. And because the power of the resurrected Christ is in you, you now can live a new life. And that's what we say at baptism, right? Mm-hmm. Buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in the newness of life. So you can live a new life by the same power. So that's spiritual resurrection, I think, is what that means. So. That's one, applica- one, one application of it. All right. Any, any questions in the room? Any other questions? These are great. Nathan. Nathan. So for anybody online, we're talking about Barabbas possibly being a freedom fighter, and Nate's pointing out that maybe they made the decision for to free Barabbas because they thought that he might uh, do another insurrection that might be successful the next time. That Thanks. sounds like humans. That sounds yeah. like us. There was another question. So online, the question is, if, according to the Bible, homosexuality has been around for thousands of years, does it seem like it's getting worse, or is it more of our awareness of the issue? Um, there's three things I would answer. One is, yes, it's getting worse. Two is, the perception of it getting more prevalent is politically driven. Like I heard a guy the other day say that 10% of the population is homosexual. That is the most exaggerated statistic. At the most, it's 3%. Okay, it went from 1% to 3%, and that's based on some um, LGBT people's more accurate. The people who say 10%, you know where they're getting that from? This is, this will make you turn your stomach. The Kinsley Report. The Kinsley Report was written by a pervert. He, uh, I mean, I don't know how I'm going to answer this. Kinsley documented how many times toddlers did you know what. I'll just say that. When people made them do it, which is pedophilia. But they did this called it science and testing on kids. They documented how many times 
a toddler could it. This is Kinsley, a pervert. Because Kinsley, when he did a survey, he lied about his... He, he said he made it sound like he was randomly interviewing hundreds of everyday people. He was interviewing prostitutes and people in prison, asking them about their sexual practices. Prostitutes and people in prison. And that's where he got 10% homosexual. In prison, yeah, they probably are, because that's all that's available. But, that, that, but he lied about where he got his research, and it's still quoted today like it's fact. I'm telling you, trace the source of anything you think is wrong with culture. Go back to whether it's Dr. John Money, the founder of gender, gender ideology, or Margaret Sanger, the biggest proponent of Planned Parenthood. Go back to their founder and just watch the perversion there. That it, it, it's just sick. Anyway, Kinsley is the one. All this modern sexuality comes from perverts. So, um, What was for, the third thing? The third thing is that the accessibility. So... Little kids nowadays are being tempted to become homosexual where they never would have been even thought about it before, but now it's in front of them, and it's an addictive lifestyle. It's just like, would you be a drug addict if there was no drugs available? No, but all of a sudden you experiment with it, and all of a sudden you're a drug addict. So, um, for example, very, abortion was extremely rare before Roe versus Wade. Women didn't think about it, and then when it became legal, most American women were still against it, like, it's wrong, how could I? But when that availability is still out there, then you're like tempted to do that, you know? And so people are tempted to do things when it's available. You go into communities that are like dry counties, alcoholism is way down because it's just not available and you're not tempted by it. But then all of a sudden when there's a liquor store opens up down the street, all of a sudden the alcoholism goes up. It's not because it's what's in me, it's what's the problem in the culture. Mm. So homosexuality is increasing because the number's exaggerated, but because of it's, it's also more tempta temptation to be around you, but yes, it also, some people always struggle. I want to say, it's just the temptations there, people will do wrong. It's exposure. Yeah, all right, I think we need to cut it off there. Oh, okay. The Apostle Paul said, you read, I'm we doing your that job. One. That one's on there, so it's... Um, yeah, okay. Yeah, that was the question that came in. Good deal. And so just to be really clear on that question, sometimes... In Acts chapter 2, you see the tongues being specific languages, but you also see later in 1 Corinthians about tongues being something totally supernatural and different, and I don't, I'm not an expert on that one right there. But in, in either case, it was, it was something that was miraculous, that was rare, and it wasn't like everybody has to do it. Paul even said not all speak in tongues, but in some denominations, oh, if you're not speaking in tongues, you're not even saved, or you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. Not everybody is meant, some prophesy, some have the gift of mercy, some have the gift of helps. Not everybody's meant to have every uh, supernatural gift. Didn't Paul say, seek instead to be, to be a teacher? Isn't that what he said yeah. too? Um, seek prophecy. Seek prophecy. Which includes yeah. teaching, yes. Yeah. Good deal, good question. All right, let's stand. In fact, Ashley, since you're standing, why don't you read this scripture for us? Okay. And we'll read it together with you. Okay. No, not that one. We thought we changed it. Oh, well, well, we'll use it. We'll use this one. Hey, Lauren. Lauren. Hey, Lauren, you make a better door than a window. Thank you. <laughs> we'll read it again anyway. Okay. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.